Cut, and this is the K-Cut Cinema Podcast. James here, digital media creator. I have an affinity for new Hollywood cinema and no-budget film. I am one half of the Profound to Say podcast, and I also produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm Rachel, and I love world cinema and classic movies. I write for Films Fatale, and I just launched my world cinema column there. It's a great column. You guys should check it out. This is Andreas. I created and am the main editor of Films Fatale. Starting as of yesterday, because the Oscar nominations came out, we're doing our lovely award season project that we always do every year. So we're going to be doing daily lists, ranking every single nomination, and seeing all that good stuff. But this is not that. Today, we're actually going to be focusing on something completely different. So this is an experiment, which goes back many decades ago, at least the 70s, because of one given factor. If you're not familiar with the dark side of Oz, I don't know who, somebody came up with a brilliant idea to watch The Wizard of Oz, the iconic movie, that one, with Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon playing at the same time. Basically, as soon, they haven't fine-tuned to like an art where it's like the third roar of the MGM logo, I think. That's when you start The Dark Side of the Moon. And it makes sense because a lot of of the album is like instrumental passages or even songs. So it's very cinematic in scope. The odd lyrical passage would kind of go in line with what was happening on screen. So us and them, the line, which is which you see the wicked witch on screen. It just worked out a little too well. And it's become this big mythological thing, like just conspiracy, like, Oh, did Pink Floyd actually make this with this movie in mind? So, We're not going to be talking too much about that, but we're going to be talking about this actual experiment because I was inspired by it. I've done this type of thing before. After knowing about this, of course, I didn't just do it for no reason. A couple of years ago, I saw a lot of similarities between two of my subjectively favorite things when it comes to like, you know, current stuff. So this is back in 2014. Black Swan was four years old and... One of my favorite metal albums ever, Sunbather by Black Metal Shoegaze Band, Def Evan, came out. So it was a year old. And I saw a lot of thematic similarities, like, you know, the, the destined to be a greater person, to achieve more, and you can't for different reasons. On Sunbather, it's, it's, you know, it's like an unfortunate life where you can't, you know, enjoy more and you're living in poverty or, you know, difficulty in Black Swan. It's the perfectionism that's self-destructive. So... I tried playing both at the same time, and it actually worked out really well, especially the melodramatic nature. So for years, I've been wanting to try this again and seeing how much of this is my own self-opposed influence, like I'm making it work, to how much it actually does work. So enough of me rambling. The three of us chose our own albums, our own films, and basically lined them up where we were supposed to. And not only did we try for ourselves, but we also asked each other to try it. I don't, that wasn't mandatory, that part. I did listen to all three. Same here. I didn't. Oh, that's okay. I mean, we can still try and detail it. So part of the experiment is to see if our own experiments worked. And part of it is, do we think other people's worked? So since I've talked for already four minutes, Jesus, uh, Rachel, why don't you go first? What was your film and your album? Sure. So I went with Paul Simon's album, Graceland, one of my all-time favorite albums, and the Reese Witherspoon movie of 2014, Wild. The reason I picked this is not really because of the lyrics of Graceland, but because I've always felt that it's a very well-constructed album in terms of having a story through all the songs. And it's about 
to me at least, being broken and going to that place when you're in a really bad spot and then going out of your comfort zone and coming back. And that is exactly what this album was about. And, you know, I think it was pretty much a success with Wild. You've got Reese Witherspoon walking alongside these gorgeous landscapes. The music pairs up pretty well with it, I would say especially towards the end, especially like Crazy Love and The Myth of Fingerprints. Mm Mm-hmm. And it didn't do so well when it was more telling a story within the song, like Under African Skies or Homeless, and especially when the music was more centered in African music, Yes, because it just didn't quite match. But I thought the general arc of the album and then the arc of Reese Witherspoon in the movie worked, personally. The other one I tried was Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix with South Park, but it just kind of played (laughs) over nothing. I wanted to get Dolores Umbridge to sing Blame Canada. Didn't happen. Yeah, so South Park, the uh, bigger, bigger better uncut. On, on, uncut, yeah, the soundtrack. Yeah. So uh, we, we won't get into that uncle song, but um, I mean, that was a worthy experiment. Uh, what I found, and I, I don't know if you found this as well, you'd think lyrical emphasis would be a better quality to have, but I found when I tried a bunch of mantras I'll get into, that just wasn't lining up so the musical elements of of graceland even though it didn't match up with like you know the american wasteland versus you know african music mm-hmm. paul simon's infused music the music itself was good enough oh well, yeah. yeah exactly but still it's not so much matching up in that way but still feeling like you are the outlier in this world that is now yours to explore that was still there, mm-hmm. and it still felt as optimistic. I think the album is a lot more optimistic than the film is, because like in Wild, it's a cathartic experience, you know. Whereas Graceland, when Paul Simon went to go record it, these are the after effects. So it's like it's what he basically brought back with him: this optimism. Yeah, I don't know. I find Graceland personally to be very, very cathartic, like especially the title track. So. To me, that was how I read it. And when you think about how his personal life had been, Simon, before he wrote the album, I don't know. I think there's an element in there. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think, like, Wilde is still, like, going through it, whereas Graceland, he's been there. So music's a bit, like, poppier. It's a bit more, except for something like Homeless. Homeless is a little bit minimalist enough to feel, like, barren and, like, you know, hard-hitting. But, like, because it just pops, it's like a celebration that he got through it, whereas Wilde, you're still seeing it happen. And it ends when she gets to the first rest stop on the trail where she meets other hikers and things like that. Which is perfect. That really meant she had sort of grown into her journey and she was more comfortable with it. She'd gotten through those first few difficult days and I just thought that matched up quite well. I do think for the most part it's a success as much of a success as this can get without being mind-blowingly uncanny you can still have like varying degrees but like on a scale of like what to five how successful do you think this was Mm, 3.5 yeah so like good enough to like try again but not maybe not as lined up as you thought no it it wouldn't make a hippie in the 70s turn their head (laughs) Uh, fair enough well yeah i'd say like a 3.5 or maybe even at times like a four like it just it felt um even if it wasn't like the right music per se or like the right lyrical content, it's the same battles, like the same eternal battles as you exactly. pointed out. But it's almost like a nice contrast that it's not like poppy music. So it's not like, you know, this dissonance, but it's poppy music, but dealing with like the same, as you pointed out, like the same emotional, whatever, but like, it still was like uplifting music. So it almost brought like a, a like a tenderness to what you were seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So 
yeah, I think for the most part it was it was quite good. So, uh, James, let's let's get to yours now. Yours is a little bit more thematically very very identical in a way. What was yours? Your album and your your movie. Well, for the movie, I decided to go with Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, and the album I chose is often referred to as The Godfather of Hip Hop Albums, which is Raekwon's Only Built for Cuban Links. Yes, and I only learned this because of this experiment that part three is actually coming out, so it really is like The Godfather is a part three as well, so that's cool. Um, Part two is also fantastic, but uh, obviously we can guess why you chose this, but still... Why did you choose this? It just seemed like a given. Like with all episode idea pitches, the minute you suggested it, I instantly knew what I was going to do. I just figured mafia film, mafia rap album. It just seems like you just got to try it. Like the first mafia rap album. Yeah, it's actually yeah the first you know mafia themed rap album. So I just figured it'd be an interesting fit. While there were definitely a lot of moments that really hit home. I think the only thing that really held it back was starting it from the beginning, the good portion of like the first, I don't know, fourth or third of the movie is set in the wedding. Mm-hmm. Right. And that kind of made it a little bit awkward, but anytime they cut to not the you know happy festive party into like the house or rooms where people are having conversations, I thought that's where it really synced up well. And then there are certain moments where maybe some, maybe a lyric or some like, sound effects or something happening would line up with certain parts and some parts of the wedding the singers actually lined up with some of the more singy parts of the soundtrack so oh yeah, yeah. that that was like, definitely can it, can it be all, like can it be so simple i think the song is called i don't remember it's the one that's also on 36 chambers otherwise because it's a wu-tang clan album at heart it's raekwon but it's got it's like basically co-featuring Ghostface Killer, but also got everyone outside of Old Dirty Bastard, I believe. Um, I think he actually is the one singing on that uh, closing track. Oh, okay. I, so I, I don't th- know. I if think he was everybody credited. is actually on it into some capacity. Okay, cool. Also, Nas, one of the greatest verses of all time. Can't turn that down. Uh, oh, it was also the first outside Wu feature that was ever exactly. on one of their projects. But the point is, because it's Wu, they, you know, they're always talking about you know the clan or the family. And Godfather is obviously very family oriented. So I thought I thought that a lot of that lined up a lot, where it's like you know, especially Ghostface who. When given the opportunity to not rap and just be the hype man, is always talking about like you know we sit together, the family, you know, you know, it's Ghostface. So a lot of that lined up a lot. Or like, oh god, I could swear there was a moment where somebody brought up the name Michael and Michael Corleone was on screen. I was like, oh damn, like, oh, I missed that. Okay, yeah. So there's there there are moments where it does line up, but then obviously when Ghostface is like, I don't want anyone to sound like me ever in like that one skit that's not going to line up with stuff. It's one of those things where at moments it's like a perfect blend, but perhaps not like narratively. Right. Aesthetically for sure. Like it's it's a definite mood, this one. You know, I think one of the things that also kind of struck interesting with combining these two was particularly the skit at the beginning and kind of what's a little bit throughout of, you know, these guys who don't want to be, in the street life, much like Michael doesn't really, you can tell he doesn't really want to be a part of the family business. Mm-hmm. So I thought yeah. that really was really interesting because, you know, in the end, he kind of just has to take the mantle, but you know, there's this constant fight against it. Yeah. I feel like, and this is a limitation that I put on both of you. So this is 
entirely my own fault. I feel like if you were able to start it at a different time or be uh, picky and choosy as to what songs play when, because like when they have that skit about you know the 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 shootout happening and it's like oh no my buddy's like been shot and all of that and like nothing's happening on screen with with this you could easily line that up with something else with like I don't want to spoil the Godfather because this isn't a Godfather episode per se but more than enough bodies fall that we could line right. that up but we can't really do that it's more or less seeing if it just works as on its own which it is what it is it's it's it doesn't sync up literally but it's again it's certainly a, a mood it's a vibe or it's like just a two together it doesn't work but it also works perfectly almost like both separate parts just married you know honestly what i would like to hear is if you took the instrumentals from the album and kind of scattered them throughout replacing the score i think that would actually fit really well with the dialogue that would on be top. amazing that like if, be like cool. if the instrumental was just the score itself along with the original like dialogue in place i think that would actually because i honestly think there's certain moments where the music is better than the actual score itself which i mean the score is obviously great and it fits but for some reason just well it's rizza yeah it's just like, like like that cinematic sound meets hip-hop just seems like oh this definitely has to go together i think at that point it's like that type of it's not like an actual syndrome or anything i don't think but it's like that mentality where your brain is like, you know, it's like used to like, you know, like the rhythm of like, you know, music and whatnot. So it's making the images do a little bit more like work to like match the music. So uh, I think like, it's like a, de- like a definite fit there because the music is like doing all the heavy, uh, all the heavy lifting and you know, the images are complementing it rather than the other way around. When you're doing this experiment, I feel like the music's supposed to complement the film. Right. If you know what I mean. Out of five, what would you give your results? I would give it a four. Okay. Because there are just so much of it that just made sense together. It's just, it doesn't quite get the perfect because the wedding kind of throws it off. Which unfortunately is a big portion. I mean, it's, it's, one of, it's one of the more important parts in the beginning. So that sets the tone for it all. I mean, weddings have a lot of conflict. That, well, yeah, and then like you That's know, true. you have like Sunny like breaking the cameras and stuff. The, you know, the art, the art thing. Oh, I don't remember who the character is because obviously I watched this with you know Raekwon's only built for Cuban links on top. But the old lady singing at the wedding, I think she's like a, like a relative. That with hip hop on top was just. I don't care if it didn't fit perfectly. That was just beautiful. <laughs> like, uh, also, the movie seemed to move a bit faster than I remember with the music on top. Like, you mean narratively? No, I, I'm talking like my perception of time. It, it, like when the oh, album the finished, I couldn't literally. believe that it was already halfway through the movie or like oh, quarter, yeah. or a third of the way moving. I was like, hold on, wait a second. I remember when I watched this, it seems to move a bit slower. But with this music on top of it, it almost sped things up. Yeah, because I don't want to spoil, but it ends, if I'm not mistaken, it ends roughly around the time that Michael starts to like try to take over, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, it's around there. Yeah, so that's, that's. I mean, it is a third of the film because this is like an hour and 10 minutes long, this album. But yeah, I guess because the album is only so long and this is like building up for a three plus hour film. If you've got the album on, it's more digestible despite the fact that it's over an hour. Cool. Well, I think overall that, that's interesting because, you know, something I want to try down the road if we ever do this again is something where it's a longer album that matches like the runtime of a movie, which I kind of did this time around before I found 
the film that I wanted to go with, the film and the album that I wanted to go with. I tried a couple. I tried Bjork's Vesperton with uh, Groundhog Day, which was a Winter Wonderland thing of beauty. I was like dying of laughter with like, you know, these choirs illuminating when the groundhog is being lifted. I thought this was like just like the greatest thing, but I felt like I could still do better. So I tried a few others. I tried, one thing I tried was Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask Replica, which is like avant-garde, hour and a half long craziness with a goofy movie because it's roughly around the same length. They're both 78 minutes, I think. I wish it worked better than it did. Uh, oddly enough, it made a goofy movie look very, very dramatic and serious in comparison. This that music, movie is so. dramatic and serious for a Disney movie. I know. Like, <laughs> I, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. So it's like, I was expecting a little bit more hijinks, especially because like, you know, it was like a perfect time. Like they're both literally 78 minutes. So it's like, oh, this would be perfect. I don't know if either of you have heard Trout Mask Replica, but it, once you hear like three seconds, you're like, oh, what the hell is this? Like within three seconds. So I'm going to try and find a movie that matches, whether it's El Topo or something else. I'm going to try. But I ended up finding something that actually I feel worked quite well. I went back in time and I was trying to think these aren't working because of, you know, the lyricism in Vespertine wasn't lining up or, um, well, Travis Replica, let's be honest, isn't going to match anything. I'm going to still try. But I was trying to think maybe it's the aesthetics that I want to focus on. So what are two very aesthetic, you know, films or albums? So I ended up going with The Cranes Are Flying, which is one of my favorite films of all time from the 50s. And at first I tried it with Kid A by Radiohead, noticed when that album finished, how much runtime was left and thought, well, Kid A's got a side B technically. It's known as Amnesiac. It's a sister album where it's like all of the songs that didn't fit a Kid A got turned into this. There's even like two songs that marry each other. The both albums have morning bells, one in Kid A style, one in Amnesiac style. So basically it the entire movie's length. There's like three minutes off that I think. Was it okay to watch, Rachel? I loved it. It really? made it look like it made it look so beautiful and honestly it felt like a it should have been a silent movie with with a backing score. Which is too bad because the actual score is like really good. And like, yeah. you know, all of the sound work and everything. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've seen the movie before, but you really didn't miss much because they were so expressive and the music really backed it up. Of course, it didn't match perfectly in every scene, but the overall right. vibe, I think, really carried through the, the whole arc of her losing him to the war and then going through what she did with the other man. And ah, it's so good. I feel like thematically, especially the Kid A portion, I don't mm. know, are you too familiar? Are, like, are you very familiar with Radiohead? or Not at all. I know okay. that song. Um, Radiohead well, is such a good band. Now you know a bunch. <laughs> now you've heard like 20. Um, okay, so Kid A, a lot of the thematic lyrical elements lined up almost perfectly. So um, everything in its right place. You know, the two lead characters are together. They're in love. I don't remember her name. I know her as Squirrel. Veronica. That's her pet name. There we go. Veronica, yes. But, like, uh, Squirrel as well. And, okay, the second song, Kid A, doesn't really line up narratively, but it, like, sets the tone of, like, you know, where she lives, what the deal is. But as soon as the war is announced, a national anthem comes on, which is, like, a very political song. Perfect. 
It's like, well, bam! It's like perfect freaking timing. And some things are just so perfect. So like Tree Fingers, which is like an instrumental passage, kind of sits at like one point. Optimistic. See, this is where it gets tricky because Optimistic is more or less like a, like an anti-capitalist song, which, you know, still deals with like, you know, sarcastically being like, you know, optimistic, like, you know, try the best you can, which still fits, but like it also doesn't because that's not what you're seeing on screen at all. But still, like, the vibe of it, I guess. But then when they're talking about, like, women and children and Idiotech, you know, like, the last people to survive and, like, all the men are going off to war, a lot of it lines up really well. And just knowing how devastated the Soviet Union was by the war, especially on the civilian level, oh, it's chilling. Yeah, so I feel like the Kid A portion lined up extremely well. And I used the Spotify version. So Spotify cuts out all of the empty space between the final song and, you know, this instrumental passage this untitled passage so i cut that out as well and that passage happens when veronica basically like without spoiling you know chooses a different fate let's say and it solidifies Mm -hmm. so that's where it ends and it's like let's try let's try amnesiac parts of amnesiac are perfect so like the final song when there's a brass section and veronica's like running through the crowds and there's like you see little tubas and trumpets that's perfect but stuff like knives out or you know, some of the other ones, like, they don't work as well. Something like Pyramid Song, I feel like, would just fit anything that's, like, really depressing. But otherwise, the amnesiac side of things, I think, is more strictly mood. I don't think it lined up as well thematically whatsoever. Well, like, what did you think? I don't know. I, to be honest, I, since I didn't know the album at all, I wasn't really paying in as close attention as you were. I, I mean, I barely registered any of the lyrics and things like that. Yeah. So I was really just taking in what it made me feel. And so, I don't know, I, I thought it matched up fine. Like musically, I guess. I really thought it suited it, and I was, I was pretty sad by the end. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I guess you learned the hard way that Radiohead is some really depressing music. Yeah, um, and I mean, that was a really depressing chapter in history and a depressing movie, too, so... <laughs> I, I feel like if I had to grade it a 4 at times, a 4.5, I feel like the Kid A portion is like a 4.5. I think, again, the success that I found was going for aesthetic films and aesthetic albums as opposed to albums that tell a strict story, even though I think Kid A kind of tells a story. That's a discussion for a whole different podcast, I would say. Um, even though I think it tells a story, it's mostly an aesthetic experience. Like this breaking up of rock music into the music of the future where it still hasn't even been matched yet outside of maybe Amnesiac. Um, the Amnesiac portion would probably be like a 3.5 or a 4. But the Kid A portion I thought was a slam dunk. Almost perfect at times, especially when it's like how to disappear completely. God, some of it in limbo was fantastic. I think it lined up really, really, really well. So those were our dark side of Oz experiments. And it got us thinking... What are some films where we think the music actually didn't line up at all? Like, this isn't Dark Side of Oz anymore. This is, like, literally the music made for the movie. It actually didn't line up at all. And what could we do to maybe make it better if we thought that far? James, do you have an example of a film where the music just didn't really cut it for you? It could be a scene. It could be a couple scenes. It could be the entire film. Because usually music, they get pretty right, I would say. Even in bad movies. Yeah. Well, the thing that most people don't really understand, and I don't want to say understand, something they don't realize 
that it's not often that music or sound are very off because it's happening mm-hmm. so much. You can't afford to fail with that. Exactly. Like I really struggled finding something for this. You can forgive shoddy camera work to an extent, or maybe something's a little off, you know, maybe something's out of, out of focus that shouldn't be. But when it comes to sound, if sound is bad, you can tell. But one movie that I just thought I just, the music just didn't cut it. And this entire movie didn't cut it for me, but I'm going to go with 2017's Justice League. Yeah. Oh, God. Because I was livid when I found out they were replacing Junkie XL with Danny Elfman. And that's nothing against Danny Elfman. I like Danny Elfman. But his score definitely was one of the factors that killed the whole vibe that the whole DC universe is going for. And also, he had to bring back you know, his Batman theme and then brought back the Superman theme. And I was just sitting there like, why? Why are we doing this? This is just, it's self-parody at this point. On the nose, right? Yeah, it just didn't really do it for me. It was, it was, it was one of the many things, aside from Josh Whedon annihilating the, you know, flick with his style, because what they made us think was, you know, kind of like a 50-50 thing. Apparently, he reshot basically the majority of the movie, and it was his. Right. So, it's, it wasn't like he's finishing off the movie while Zack Snyder was grieving. He just... Not that I, I, I don't actually care too much about Justice League, but I know it's important to you. Like, he just basically decimated it in his own way. Well, yeah, and a lot of people didn't know at the time, but Zack Snyder said recently it wasn't just him taking a break from the project that got him to leave. It was he was sick of fighting with Warner Brothers over his vision. So he just gave up. He was like, you know, I'm out just because they were pushing so hard for him to just completely warp what he was doing. So he's like, all right, you know, what? especially with everything that was going on. Yeah. But yeah. When when they made the announcement, I was like, I like Danny Elfman. Not for this. Definitely not for this. Because, <laughs> I mean, you got to think like we're coming from having, you know, the DC is having scores by Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL, like these very, you know, elegant scores. And then you have Danny Elfman, who, who does very elegant things himself. But the more whimsical. Yeah, it just didn't really meet my standard. It was like, okay, this is kind of cool. When he colors outside the lions, he even does well. Like, you know, he did the, I think he did all the Fifty Shades movies, if I remember correctly. Oh, that I couldn't tell you. (laughs) I mean, those movies are awful. I only saw one because it got Oscar nominated. Thanks, The Weeknd. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that was actually, he, he, it was very different for you know his general style but then again you know most people think of him as he's almost like a caricature of john williams when he does tim burton movies um yeah yeah i would say okay john williams has done some amazing scores but overall i know it's sacrilegious i i I do like it danny alphabet at his best like edward scissorhands i might have grown out of the film but that score though that score is really good gorgeous Okay, it's not better than John Williams at his best, but Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman's done some good stuff. And don't forget, Danny Elfman wrote the Simpsons theme. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That, okay, that holds up to, like, what John Williams was able to do, like, you know, capturing everything in, like, you know, a minute span of of a sound, which is completely impossible to, to mix up with anything else. Exactly. Before this becomes a Danny Elfman tribute episode, we could do that one day, I promise. I don't want to lie, though. Uh, Rachel, is there a movie that the music just didn't line up for you? Whether it's in a scene, a couple scenes, the entire thing? Sure. This one, um, so the movie's wonderful, but the score is pretty messed up in one specific scene. So have, are either of you familiar with On the Beach? No. You told me about it, yes. Okay. 
Yeah, so it's it's a movie from 1959, Stanley Kramer, and it's based on a novel. It's one of the best novels I've ever read. And it's about the aftermath of a nuclear war. And this was 1959, so that was a pretty solid threat at the time. Mm-hmm. And it stars Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. And they're all in Australia. So they're these kind of last survivors of humanity in Australia. And so naturally, a good part of the score is based on waltzing Matilda, which I get because the characters are very patriotic Australians and it's Australia's number one song. That makes sense. So they use it as a motif in the movie and it's beautiful. But then at the end, so spoilers for a very old movie, the town is completely empty. There's nothing there. Everybody's dead, Dave. And all of a sudden you get this blasting of waltzing Matilda. I mean, Stanley Kramer, he's a great filmmaker, but subtlety was not his forte. And you get this giant banner stretching across the square and it says like, repent, repent, the days are at an end. And it's like he's screaming at the audience as waltzing Matilda blares at you. And I still think that scene could have worked, but it would have had to be either very subtle sounds or silence. Yeah, or something that's more yeah. passively dramatic, maybe like yeah. chugging strings or something, which you didn't really have back then. Usually, you know, I love like the 50s and 60s, but usually you want drama, you get the big score. You want curiosity, yeah. you get the oboe. Like, and this it, is it about it closing down. <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, just like, everybody's dead, waltzing Matilda. Oh, so that would have lined up perfectly with the South Park soundtrack, I think, maybe. <laughs> anyway, but the movie's still good, so you should you should go watch it, guys, but don't like the ending, just pretend it didn't happen. I'm gonna completely try and forget what you told me then, so I go watch it with fresh eyes and ears. Um uh something about uh soil and green as people. Yeah, I don't remember that that at all. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> as for me, I can't think of too many movies where the entire score just didn't cut it because again i feel like when it comes to like the the things that that could be bad in a movie scores usually aren't it so even in like some movies that i hate that i hate the score is like good and it makes me think do i hate this movie because i like that music but no i, I still hate the movie but the you know music's good <laughs> so i'm gonna get a bit of flack for this because the oscar nominations were just yesterday and you know, this is doing really well this award season, and I do like this movie, but some of the score in The Trial of the Chicago 7 just really bothers me. It just really bothers me. Like, the climactic scene at the end felt like it came straight out of, like, a Steven Spielberg something or other when it could have been, like, so much more visceral and, like, earnest. It, it just delegitimizes so much of the film and its raw power, I think. I think I've said this on the pod before, Aaron Sorkin as a screenwriter is brilliant for the most part. As a filmmaker, I think he's quite rudimentary. Yeah. Because like, if you look at his, his, the screenplays that are elevated the most, The Social Network, that's David Fincher, Steve Jobs, that's Danny Boyle. They're directed by other people. So when it comes to him directing his own vision. He does a lot of by-the-number stuff as a director, and that score is certainly not helping. So it's not like throughout the entire film, but they're just elements, especially towards the end where it's like, 
they're kind of sucking the, you know, like the authenticity out of this. This should be feeling so much better than it is right now. This feels like I'm watching like the post when this is better than the post, but it just doesn't feel like it. You know, I don't actually know. Have either of you seen the trial of Chicago seven yet? Yes. No, I not have. yet. I've been meaning to. Yeah. I didn't really notice the score one way or the other. So I guess I feel it's kind of forgettable. Well, that's the other thing. Like it's, it's, Outside of it being a bothersome score, at its best, it, it's still good. It just it doesn't fit this. But at its best, it's like it just doesn't – you don't remember it at all. Like, I can't tell exactly. you its best passages. I can tell you the worst passages because they bothered me. The ending the was best, so crappy. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it could have been like a hurrah, like a triumphant something, but it felt like I was watching The Reader. Like <laughs> – it could have just been better. Like, and, so to call a back a previous episode, what do you think would have happened if Steven Soderbergh directed this movie? Well, have you seen Traffic? I have seen Traffic. I have not. For instance, I won't spoil them. The ending uses a song that Brian Eno used for a Landing on the Moon documentary. And it's like minimalist, but beyond gorgeous. Like It makes me want to bawl my eyes out every time Traffic ends. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's with like nothing. That's like one guy and and like you know some production mixing help. I don't. He collaborated with somebody on that score. I think I don't remember the original score, not Traffic, but you know Soderbergh used the Eno song. Anyway, Brian Eno could do so much with so little, and it's like this is like five notes, I think overall, and I want to ball my eyes out with the way that Soderbergh paired this up. Screw it. Let's take that song, place it over the ending of Chicago 7. Guaranteed I'm going to be bawling my eyes out. If he had something like minimalist but effective, not these swelling instruments and this orchestra, like, you know, triumphant, like, it was too much. It's sappy. Rachel called it sappy. Mm, It was very sappy. If you got, like, the right notes, you could still be triumphant, but, like, the right notes with the fewest instruments or the fewest passages... It would have been like a realization, like this this chilling moment, but it feels like it overtakes it, you know? I want to put on Les Mis every time Eddie Redmayne's talking. <laughs> so, or like in like the theory of everything, or like the Danish girl, or... Um, <laughs> well, Jupiter Ascending, it can help. That can That's certainly true. help, you know? Anything you, could I, help that, though. <laughs> maybe that would be really good with Trout Mask Replica, but... That's not my recommendation. We are going to do our weekly recommendations, though. These are films that, you know, every week we want to give you a random film, either on topic or off topic, stuff that we love. Rachel, what is your recommendation for this week? Mine's a mockumentary from circa 2003. It's called The Delicate Art of Parking, and it is a man who is on a quest for revenge by investigating the psychology of parking meter attendants. I believe it takes place in Vancouver. It is quite a delight. You've never heard of this? No, this sounds amazing. I I remember laughing my head off when I first saw it. I'll try not to laugh right now. We've all been antagonized while trying to park a car, and this movie will be very cathartic. Wow, what's it called? The Delicate Art of Parking. That alone sounds gorgeous. I need to watch this movie. That that is a pretty striking title. Mm -hmm. The premise, it's a mockumentary. And the poster's an exploding parking meter, or it's smoking because it's so annoyed with being ticketed sold i'm gonna be watching that this weekend i hope that i am 
I'm serious. That's actually very captivating. Uh, uh, James, oh, James, do you have any um, vehicular? Actually, I'm going to go first. I'm going to keep it thematically relevant. So I'm going to, I'm going to recommend happy go lucky, which oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> speaking of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the joys of driving <laughs> a fantastic film with a, uh, with a breakthrough performance by Sally Hawkins, who I love dearly. And um, a good, you know, it's, it's about her being this, this freeing spirit and it's relatively plotless, but at the same time, there's a lot of narrative elements to it. It's mostly her relationships with people around her, but the biggest uh, center point is her clashing with this strict, very conservative conspiracy theorist uh, driving instructor. So that's why I thought of that. Uh, I love happy go lucky. It's uh it's one of my favorite um, comedies or like dramedies of the, uh, of the two thousands. So James, do you have a driving relevant <laughs> film that you can recommend to our audience? Last minute conditions. Always fun. No, I don't. Unfortunately, you, you can say I was like, off the top of my head. I don't want to say drive because that's just, the it French just seems connection. too obvious. <laughs> What's your rec? Uh, uh, so my recommendation is 1996 is, Bound, which is the directorial debut of the Wachowskis. Oh yeah, nice. I, it's just a film that I really enjoy. It's a simple neo noir crime thriller, and it's just really good. It, it's the movie that proves they know what they're doing behind the camera. Yes, it's nothing more, nothing less than what it needs to be. It also has a really good cast. It's got Jennifer Tilly, Gina Gershon, and Joe Pantoliano. And it's a very simple story. I mean, the camera works really good. It's very well edited. It's well acted. The dialogue's great. And it's just an overall good flick. It's something I highly recommend to anybody who's into that genre of film or, you know, just movies in general. I mean, obviously, they, you know, skyrocketed into the stratosphere when they made The Matrix. But it's, I think I like it because it's devoid of all the things that I grew to not enjoy about their stuff afterward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because like the maximalism, yeah, the maximalism and the self-importance and the the how do I put this? The style over substance. Yeah, the style over substance. They're being more concerned about technology than they are actually coming up with a good story. You know, it's I'm kind of interested to see what's going to be happening with the new Matrix film because it's only one of them doing it this time, and also they is it Lana? I don't remember. I thought it was both think. this whole time. My bad. No, it was only one of them. I think it was. Is it Lana or is it? I think it's Lana. Okay. I don't remember if there's any driving inbound though. I will pretend that there is. <laughs> <laughs> that honestly, it it sounds like there should be with a name like Bound. But bound I'm kind of curious because there's talk how she was saying that. It's gonna, they're doing some experimental camera setups and it's gonna be like kind of revolutionize the way movies are shot. And I'm just like, here we go, being James Cameron again. Well, to be fair, the original Matrix did. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it was definitely groundbreaking, but it's 2021. What can you really do at this point? I guess we'll have to find out. Famous last words, James. I'm just glad that they got uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss to be in it, but no one else is coming back, which kind of blows my mind, but. Yeah, well, especially we'll something like, like the Matrix, where it's all like you know simulated. You know, you'd think, you know, it, it would make right. a little bit more sense. But uh, well, technically, Keanu Reeves was in Speed, which involves driving. So technically, there's like a very you know, and 
you know, using the Matrix. They made the Matrix. They made Bound. There's the barest of, of connections, but we made it. So uh, these are your three driving-themed recommendations. So. so next week's our musical episode, right? Is it your turn to pick? If I'm it teasing. is, it, it, it could actually be. <laughs> oh. It could actually be. We'll I sing mean, the whole way through. <laughs> <laughs> and then we will lose everybody because you know Rachel's gonna be great, uh, James. I'm sure you're gonna be better than Ian, and I'm gonna come in with my baritone, whatever the hell, my my foghorn, and it's gonna kill the entire pod. So I won't give you any sort of uh, snippet into what that's gonna sound like. Instead, I'm just gonna usher us out. That was the K cut. Uh, as far as I can control, you're never gonna hear me sing unless Rachel makes it a musical episode, and then well. Uh, I hope you stick around. Uh, this that was the K cut. Now we're going into the L cut. <laughs> <laughs>